Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. Amen. You may be seated. How many of y'all enjoying those uh, wonderful old hymns today, those timeless treasures? Amen. You know, I wonder sometimes as I listen to songs that were some of my favorite songs in the most recent years, like Oceans or uh, Reckless Love or something like that. And, and then I, after I've heard it about 74 times on the radio, it kind of plays out. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I don't really care for that anymore. And I wonder, did the folks back in the 16th, 17th century, I wonder, did they have that same feeling about some of these songs that were written? Uh, and, and then maybe they cycle back through. I'm not really sure how that plays out, but I, uh, I think it's something worth considering nonetheless. Because I think as we remember where we've come from, it helps us to put in sight where we're going. It helps us to be reminded of who we were and, and who we are today. I've said this many times and I think it to be true is I, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I fully hope to be, but I thank God I'm not where I used to be. Can anybody testify to that? Amen. So when we think about this idea of remembering, looking into the moments that have defined us, both from, from hymns, great hymns that have become these timeless treasures Those Bible stories that we often discount as just simply that rather than leaning into the storyline and and, and extrapolating those truths that apply to me today. Uh, Stories that have been told, Proverbs, if you will, that help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. I'll go ahead and give you the title. The title is Trusting God for He Has the Last Word. No matter what you're going through today, God has the last word. God uh, is going to determine what's going to be. In fact, if we study the scriptures, the Ephesians writer Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, you're his workmanship, you're his masterpiece, created, watch this, in Christ Jesus unto good works that God determined before time began that we would walk in them. That tells me that God has a sovereign plan. And that that sovereign plan is also God's perfect will. That there is a perfect plan for our life. And so with that, I want to jump into what I consider one of the most notable characters in Scripture. A real person, historically, but also a great learning tool for you and I today as we dive into the life of Joseph. Joseph, if I can put it in perspective, it really has to start with Abraham, who was told by God that he was going to have this son that would come from him and would be a blessing. And and that blessing would be so big that it would be a number that no man could count, that it would build forth through this covenant of land, seed, and blessing that this son would bring forth that promise. So from Abraham, he has, of course, an illegitimate son named Ishmael. And we'll talk about that in a moment. That wasn't the promise. We know that because even later when Abraham is going to take Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him as God had called him to do to see his faith, he told him to take his son, his only son. So even in scripture, we see through God's providence that he was not the son of promise. Isaac was. Isaac had a couple of sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, of course, would be the one whose name would be changed to Israel. 
Now, Jacob, as it were, had a unique story to say the least. He went to take a wife. He fell in love with a woman named Rachel. Her dad's name was Laban. Laban was a wealthy man and he had another daughter named Leah and that was his eldest daughter. So customary of the day, it would have been more practical, more customary that the oldest daughter would be married first. But nonetheless, Jacob had his eye on Rachel. So the reason, or I should say the dowry, the price that was agreed upon was that Jacob would work for Laban for seven years in order to get this daughter's hand. And at the end of those seven years, instead of the father Laban sending in Rachel into the wedding quarters where that relationship would be sexually consummated, under dark light, he sends in Leah. It's like a lifetime soap opera. And he has relationship with her and then realizes he has done so with the wrong, wrong, wrong person. So he goes back to Laban. He's very upset nonetheless. And he tells him, he says, well, what I'm going to force you to do is work for me another seven years. So 14 years he's invested in the relationship that he had the desire to have all in the beginning. But he ends up taking these two wives and, and ironically, Leah begins to just have child after child after child after child. All the while, Rachel, who was really the one he wanted, could not have children. And sees Leah having child after child, having a daughter, having these sons, one behind the other. And she cries out to God in desperation. Why have you, why have you brought this curse upon me? Some language like that. And crying out in her old age that her womb be opened up. And God saw fit in her old age to open up her womb. And she would have... Two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. These two boys would be pinnacle to the movement, as it were, of being in the, in the lineage of Christ, in the sense of the children of Israel. There were 10 sons that were given a tribe from Leah, and then there was two that was given a tribe from Rachel. In the end of all things, it should have been Reuben, the firstborn, who would have got the double blessing or the double portion, but because things didn't go the way they should have gone, it ended up going to Joseph. But what happened is Joseph took these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, before their father in his death. And if you can kind of picture this in essence, he basically gave the double portion to Joseph, but it went directly to the two boys. That's why you see the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, not the tribe of Joseph. Now with that, however, Ephraim becomes a very pinnacle part of this story because as the, at some point in time, the, the kingdom separates and there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, of course, is Judah, the tribe through which Jesus would come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom is interchangeably called Israel or Ephraim. So that's how all of that came about. But we pick up in this storyline, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter number 37. I'm just going to read four verses. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word. And I just simply want to lay a framework for the life of this man, Joseph, and some of the tumultuous steps that he had to navigate to get to God's glory for him in his life. Genesis chapter 37, verses one through four, it says, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad with his, 
the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of his father, to his father. Now Israel, watch this, Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. You might be sitting there saying, I don't really have any favorite kids in my house. Yeah, you do. You just don't admit it. You know, there's just this thing. I can't explain it. I mean, Tyler's sitting back there right now thinking, yeah, dad, I'm the favorite. No, you're not. It was Ashley. But anyway, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I think it's just customary for us to navigate to things that are easy. So it happens sometimes even in the home. It's just something that is likened to our personality or what have you. It doesn't really mean that we love them more. It doesn't really suggest that when you really break open the language. It just really speaks of a favor. And we'll see that here as it goes on. He says, because he also made him a tunic or a coat or a cloak of many colors. But when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. Before you take your seat, I want you to just picture, if you will, this idea that they thought by the way the father acted that he certainly loved Joseph more. The scripture would lend itself to that. There was reasons. But it's one thing to maybe like your children have done. You love him more. You love her more. You let him do more. I get all that. But now he takes this flamboyant coat of many colors, puts it upon his back, and now it's a visible display of that favor. So that everywhere he went, not only did the brothers know this was the favorite, but guess what? The servants knew it. The townspeople knew it. The joining villages, everybody knew it. So I want to call this message today, trusting God, because he has the last word. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word today. And in the name of Jesus, help me to rightly divide it in truth and power and with a consequence that awakens us all to who you are. In Jesus' mighty name, we all said amen. amen. You may be seated. Give a fist bump to the person next to you that you came with today and say, you know what, I am glad that you are with me today. Go ahead and do that. I'm going to give you five points very quickly. I'm going to talk fast. Y'all know how to listen fast. Say amen. amen. And again, it won't hurt me a bit if you say amen and amen. praise the Lord and preach it, brother. We'll, we'll just have us a moment here if you do that. All right, I think I might. Number one, we see that there was a favor from the father. It's indicative in scripture that it says very clearly that he loved Joseph more than his other children because he was the son of his old age. It's hard for me sometimes because again, I, I, don't, I don't love my children any different, my grandchildren any different, but there's, there's definitely times that we can gravitate. But it says explicitly he loved them more. There was an affection, maybe because some of the stigma that has been placed over the other children because of the deception of Laban that traversed to Leah and then to the kids. Maybe that's it. But I, I want to kind of take that today and apply it to our life and say, hey, you know what? When the favor of the father, because there's a historical story with Joseph, but then there's an application for you and I. That we do as children of God, watch this, you were chosen. You're a royal priesthood. You were created for this moment. 
And by that measure, there's a favor upon each of our lives. Now that favor is there not just so you're favored, but so that, everybody say so that, so that you can fulfill the perfect will of God for your life. There's nobody else on earth, this should make you feel special, that can do what you're called to do. And we know from the book of Esther that make no mistake about it, God's will will be handled. If you don't do it, he'll raise up another. But you miss it. But furthermore, this is what God showed me this week when I was gone, is watch this. You and I are not the light source, but we are the torch bearers. He's the light of the world. I'm to merely reflect that light through the life that I live, through the sharing of the word, through the sharing of my faith. And when I'm called into, let's say, this spot in in purpose and sovereignty, if I don't do it and I walk another way, watch what happens. That leaves darkness in what should have been lit and it creates a vacuum. And guess who backfills the vacuum? It's demonic. See, the enemy simply rides our coattails. He can't have you. He can't control you. He can't touch you. But watch this. He will, however, choose to backfill a space that you should have sovereignly been standing in. Listen, it's true even with a physical light. If I shine a flashlight over in that direction, it creates a vacuum, a space of darkness. The Bible says in Thessalonians chapter four, and, and I should say First Thessalonians chapter five, he says, we're not sons of darkness, we're sons of light. So when we choose to walk, this is why it's so important to not miss God to the left or to the right. It's very important that we walk best we can. Now we're flawed, we're human, and we bring humanity to the table. But that's why prayer, that's why worship, that's why study, that's why listening. Let your prayer life become a dialogue. Don't just pray, give me this, give me this, give me this. In Jesus' name, I pray and walk away. Sit there a moment and say, now what do you say your servant's listening? Because this perfect will of God, what's this, is, is generated and propelled by and prepared for by the favor of God that's upon your life. Now, let me just say this. That favor may become evident to others. And I want you to know today, and I hate to report this to you, but not everybody's gonna celebrate the anointing and the grace and the favor that's upon your life. It's just the truth. Favor of God becomes evident. And everybody in your circle, maybe even in your family, will not celebrate the favor that God has on your life. But listen, don't take it lightly. If there's a favor upon your life, you know it. You know if there's an anointing on your life. And if it's there, don't be cavalier about it and don't be braggadocious about it. Because why? Because the Bible says if a man would exalt himself, God will abase him. That word means to humiliate you. You miss it. God God cannot work in and through a a, a pious, self-centered, pharisaical vessel. That's why I told the Pharisee, listen, these guys knew the word. They, They called themselves gatekeepers of righteousness. But you know what he told them? He said, on the outside, you look like a beautiful whitewashed tomb, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. That's not the vessel that God, that's not language that God used to say I'm using that person. But then he goes down here to the cussing line fisherman and said, hey, you drop your nets and follow me. I'll show you something that'll blow your mind. Because they became empty. 
See, if you feel, man, this didn't even get, the nine o'clock didn't get this. Y'all getting a double dose. Listen, the reality is, is God does not need perfection. He's perfect. He doesn't need you to come with all of this stuff and say, here's what I have. You know what he really wants? He just wants broken, empty vessels. He'll fill you up. There's a favor upon your life. And not everybody's going to celebrate that. So we see, if you're a note taker, point two, we see the hatred of the brothers. Look at what the scripture says. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not speak peaceably to him. So their hatred grew. Let me tell you what hatred will do. Hatred is, 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 is arbitrary. Hatred makes you do impulse things. It makes you do things that you ought not to do and you sometimes regret that you did them. Whether it be you're talking about somebody, whether it be you're, you know, uh, making some insinuation or some way to break them down or what have you. It's arbitrary. It doesn't have thought. It's not planned. It has no rhyme or reason. Hatred is just simply seen as just a random act. I'll prove that to you. In the scripture, it says... And verse, I believe it's verse 20, it says, come therefore, his brother said, remember Joseph's coming into where they were in Dothan. They see him coming from afar off. They begin to mock him. Look, here comes the dreamers. Listen to what they say. Listen to what hatred does. How quickly and arbitrary, no thought, no concern of consequence. Can I say this to you? You can choose your sin but you don't get to choose the consequence. You, you'll get that. That was extra. That wasn't even written down. Listen to what he says. Come therefore, let us kill him. That's their brother. Not, hey, let's, let's beat him up. Let's, uh, let's take that coat and strip it and stomp on it. Let's kill him. And let's cast him into, listen to the language here, some pit. He says, let's kill him and let's cast him into just some pit. That, that speaks of arbitrary act. He says, and we will say some wild beast has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dreams then. This idea of some pit just, just, just speaks of this, this, they didn't even think about it, it's impulsive. And, and really what they're trying to do is simply bury him. Can I tell you, when you have the favor of God upon your life, the world at large will try to bury you. They'll take dirt and heap it upon you. You get to choose, however, do you see that as them burying you or do you see that as God allowing it to happen because you're being planted and therefore, you take your roots with the dirt that's been thrown upon your life and you lock it in and use the dirt for a good thing and you let your roots dive deep and you bring forth fruit. Hey, here's another one for you. you the stones that are thrown against you, the stones that are thrown to hurt you, the, the stones of condescending words that hurt and, and all the egregious acts, the stones that are thrown, you can pick them up and throw them back and you're no different than them or you can use those to build a bridge, watch this, to get back to them and lead them to Christ. Well, that doesn't get a lot of amens because the truth is, let's be honest, the people that are creating that kind of hurt and hatred, I don't know if I really want them to find Christ. Shame on us for words like, there's a special place in hell for her. If we let that roll from our tongues, we do not have a clue what God has saved you from because you were the one on the outside of the gate. 
You were the one on the outside of being right. You were an enemy of God. And the truth be told, if you got what you deserved and what I deserved, you'd be in hell with no hope. But God commended his love toward us in that, watch this, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. One of the most difficult things you'll ever do is to pray for your enemy. No, not the prayer, Lord Jesus. I just pray you bless them today as they fall down the steps in Jesus' name. No, I mean the one that's, hey, I, 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 I wanted, can, I, can I be transparent with you guys? I have prayed for people and wept as I cried for God to bless them because my flesh didn't want them blessed. My flesh wanted them cursed because of the harm and the words that they've spoken against me and or my family. But when you can selflessly get on your face before a holy God and truly intentionally pray for God to bless them. You see, Jeremiah chapter 17, don't turn there, verses five and eight says it this way. Thus says the Lord, curse is the man who puts his trust in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes. That's, that's for a man who puts his trust in man because man will fail you. But he says, but shall inhabit the parched places and be in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. The early translation said, but blessed is the man who places his trust in the Lord. Why? For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but his leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease yielding fruit. The Bible says it this way, make every man a liar and make God truth. Now, I know that's some stiff language and kind of seems a little condescending, but it's just talking about that. If I put my trust in a friendship, if I put my trust in this or in a pastor or in somebody who has the humanity in them to fail me, then I'm gonna be that. I'm gonna be cursed. I'm not saying that you can't trust someone until they prove you different, amen? That's kind of my mantra. But even after that person fails me, doesn't mean I'm not gonna love them, I'm not gonna try to encourage them, or try, but I kind of draw some fences and some parameters around the amount of trust that I did place in them. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, no, if you place your trust and your purpose it's predicated on what man's word says or does or fulfills or does not fulfill. You're gonna be cursed and you're gonna find yourself dry. But if you place it in the Lord, then it'll yield fruit. Thirdly, and I, I, this is kind of where we really take off into a, a deeper place. Go ahead and ask your friends, say, are you, are you listening today? Go ahead and ask them. The reason I do that is because I'm thirsty. But we see the hatred. Remember, it started with favor. We see the hatred. But what's the progression in Joseph's life? We see favor remaining. And I'm gonna call this provision. 
Because if you look in the scripture, you see that God's favor goes before him. Provision is a word to say that God has taken forethought for your every step. Even when things that uh, calamity comes your way, God is like, I knew that was coming. I, I had a plan for that. Don't step here, step there. It's giving forethought. That's provision. So much so, this will blow your mind. Listen, look at the wording here. Remember I told you that hatred creates an arbitrary act, no thought, no rhyme or reason, but watch this. All these people are leaving. They're not walking out because I offended them. They're coming up here. Y'all just check, check it out. Genesis chapter 37. Here's what provision does. Remember, favor said some pit. Y'all remember that? Watch this. Genesis 37, 21 through 22 says, but Reuben heard it, heard what? The plot to kill him. And he delivered him, Joseph, out of the hands. And he said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit. You see the difference of the wording? That's not a mistake in grammar. That's specific. He said, let's put him in this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. You see, God's favor, unlike man's hatred, acts in specifics. So I want to give you this little, this pathway. We see the beginning of this provision, forethought. The first thing they do is they could have just killed him. But rather they threw him in some pit. But really was it some pit? Because the scripture says, for they threw him in the pit and there was no water in it. So what we glean from that is there was expectation. You have to understand, I've been there. They're not just random holes around the desert. Every archaeologist, every historian and theologian will tell you that that hole used to be a well. Which we read scripture and realize that Abraham, his great grandfather, dug wells all throughout Dothan, all throughout Shechem, all throughout the Ur of Chaldees. He went and dug wells. Well, and I don't mean this to be redundant, but wells were a, were a life spring of hope. You had to situate yourself around a well because in that desert environment, if you didn't have water, you'd be dead in a few days. The animals would be dead. So I want you to get this now. When Abraham was digging that well to get water in the moment for himself, he was really acting under the authority of God to protect his great-grandson who one day would be thrown into that pit had there been water in it. Because listen, there was a day where either Abraham or Isaac walked up to that well that they once drank from and said, man, what happened to our water? And now they're frustrated. They're like, what are we going to do? They were so frustrated, they didn't even fill it up. You know why they didn't fill it up? You know why it ran dry? God took provision to save this boy that was coming down after they died. He didn't even have knowledge of the guy. That's the powerful provision of God. You're not buying it yet? So then what happened is, had they left him there, he'd have died of, of thirst. Remember, there was no water in it. But if there'd been water in it, he'd have drowned. So along comes a band of Ishmaelites or Midianites. Remember I told you that Abraham had two sons. In the physical, what happened was he saw himself when God told him, he said, you're gonna have a, a promise, a, a seed that'll come, your seed. And that's what I'm gonna bless. And so he and Sarah got together to help God be God. Be careful when you do that. God doesn't need your help. Why? God has the last word. 
And so he, she, he, she takes her handmaid, Hagar, and says, go in and, and lie with my husband. Ladies, work with that one. We, we blow right past that. Work with that for a minute. In her humanity, she so wanted to help God fulfill the will that she was willing to allow her husband an act of infidelity. Son was born. So now he's, he's between 86 and 90 years old and he's walking around, he's like, here's the promise. It worked out anyway, because I'm old. She's old. She's never been able to have a kid. But we worked it out. The angel of the Lord comes up and says, in chapter 17 of Genesis says, this ain't the one. This is not the son of promise. She gets upset. Now she's jealous, Sarah. She sends uh, them away, Hagar and, and, and um, Ishmael away. God reveals himself to them as the angel of the Lord and said, no, no, no. My promise was true. And I'm going to bless you, illegitimate son. You never should have been born, but because my promises are yes and amen and the glory to God, I'm going to bless it. So I'm going to bless your seed and it's also going to be unmeasurable. So he runs off in a different direction. Just so happens that the day that Joseph, the great grandson of Abraham, is thrown in a well that now is without water because had there been water, he'd drown. But if he stays there, he don't have water to drink. All of a sudden, quote unquote, comes a provision of God, a band of Ishmaelites, and they become his saving grace in the moment. But guess what? They're going down to send him into bondage and they're going to sell him as a slave. They sell him to Potiphar's house. Guess what? The Bible says that he was prosperous in Potiphar's house. That's not something you say about a prisoner. When you go into a prison cell or, or, or enslavement, you're not prosperous. The Bible said everything he did prospered. So what did Potiphar do? He put him over his house and he said, you handle my affairs. But guess what? Potiphar's wife saw the favor on him and she didn't hate him. She loved him a lot. So much so she wanted to have a relationship, but him being an honorable man, guess what happened? He, when she grabbed onto his clothing, he ran away. She stripped the clothing and then she lied about him and went. I mean, can you imagine the antagonism and the hatred and the everything? Like, God, I'm trying to serve you. I do the right thing. And he gets put into an inner prison. God's provision. Because now that he's in the inner prison, guess what else it says? When he's in there, the jailkeeper looks at him and says, boy, there's something different about you. So guess what I'm going to do? I got these two inmates that just came down from the Pharaoh's house. One's a butler and one's a baker. I want you to tend to them. Again, God's provision. He goes over there and starts tending to them. Can I get you anything? He notices that they're, uh, they're, they're just kind of worn down. He says, what's going on? Well, I had, a, I had a dream. Well, hey, it just so happens I can interpret dreams because the Lord interprets them through me. He interprets their dreams. He tells one, he says, in three days, you're gonna be raised back up and, and, and your head will be raised up and you will be put back into your job. That's, you're the butler. He looks at the other dude and he says, ah, yours is not the same. In three days, you're gonna be beheaded and the crows are gonna eat your body. He tells the butler, he says, hey, remember me. When you get back into the palace that I told the dream, remember me because if you remember me, tell them there's a Hebrew that's down here in the dungeon that don't belong here. He was, he was thrown in a pit, sold it. He doesn't belong here. He's not really Pharaoh's slave. But wouldn't you know it? The guy told him he wouldn't forget him, but he forgot about him. He forgot about him for another seven years. For 13 years, he said in that prison. Think about what you would be doing with all that I've told you so far. And he was forgotten again. But guess what? God's provision was in the forgetting. 
Because had he told him, hey, Pharaoh, day one, there's a guy down here. He's a Hebrew. He doesn't belong there. He was sold into slavery. His brothers didn't like him. Oh, okay, release the slave. He goes home. Guess what he goes home to? He goes home to a father who probably going to have a heart attack when he walks through the door. He goes home to uh, uh, 10 or 11 brothers or 10 brothers that still hate him. And they're like, oh my gosh, now we're in trouble. So they're going to probably kill him again. But not only that, there's a, there's a famine coming and there's going to be no plan because nobody knows about it. Why? Because, because he forgets about him, he sits in the prison even longer. And then, then he hears six or seven years later, hey, Pharaoh had a dream. And then the butler says, oh, wait, there's the guy in the prison. Wow. He, you know, he told me in my dream and it was right. Pharaoh sends for him. In God's provision, he comes up before Pharaoh. Pharaoh told him he had two dreams. He said, really, the two dreams are one and the same. He says, you're going to have a seven year of, of plenty, more than you've ever seen. But you've got to store it up and you've got to appoint somebody over storing it up because right after that, you're going to have seven years of famine. And if you don't have it stored up, everybody in the land will die, including you. Pharaoh looks at him. He said, <laughs> who? would be greater than you to see to it. He appoints him over all, listen to the words here. There is not a decision that will be made all throughout the land of Egypt unless it's approved by him, Joseph. He becomes the prime minister, God's favor, God's provision. And all these years to bring about the glory of God. Listen to me. Take a step back. I'm, I'm suggesting that as he trusted the Lord throughout all of that, there was probably some crying out moments. Don't you know it? Oh, Joseph's a human. I mean, I get it. The Bible says if everything was written that was happened, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. Don't stop there. Look into the story and go, surely in the pit, he's like, God, seriously? When he was sold to the Ishmaelites and drugged behind a, a camel. God, are you kidding me? You're going to forsake me? When he goes into Potiphar's house, maybe he feels a little comfort. And then the crazy thing happens with Potiphar's wife. Are you, God, are you even there? I mean, maybe he kind of, maybe there was a moment where he, like the writer of the great hymn, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Louisa Steed, around the year 1751, was growing up to be a missionary. That's all she wanted to do. She was from England. And she met a man there and she married him. She ended up moving to the States, somewhere around what we know today as Coney Island, New York. She and her husband and now her four-year-old daughter was out on the beach playing, bathing in the sun. The beach was packed. They heard a noise. They heard a screaming and a yelling that someone was drowning in the surf. Her husband, without hesitation, gets off from a towel and runs out to save this kid drowning. This little boy was a little bit older than he thought and ended up pulling Louisa's husband down and she and her four-year-old daughter stood there and watched him die. She penned the words right after that. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. 
several years later, she decided to go on that mission field. And as she went on that mission field, she went to Cape Town, South Africa, and she met a man. She led him to Jesus, shared the story with him. They got married. He came back to the States and became a pastor. Thousands were saved at his ministry. Later in life, he died. And she went to Zimbabwe and went on the mission field for 15 years. And people who knew her said she was a picture of grace. The favor of God, quote unquote, was upon her life like none other. I wonder, did she and Joseph and maybe you just pray, God, help me to trust you more and more? Or do you cry out with a selfless and hopeless abandon like no one's listening but him? The words of this great hymn.
precious Jesus, my Savior and friend. And I know that thou took the favor, the hatred, the imprisonment, the failed attempts. He took it all to get to Genesis 50, 20. Let you throw that scripture up. I love this passage. It's something that I say to the enemy quite often. He, of course, Joseph was speaking it to his brothers who now came to bow down before him, knowing that he was going to have them assassinated. Whereas for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about as it is this day, watch this, to save many people. He's saying, and you can say today, what the enemy meant for evil and harm against you, God turned for good, so that, everybody say so that, many may be saved. It was true, it's this dear lady, this dear saint, Louisa Steed wrote, "'Tis so sweet, thousands would be saved because of, not in spite of, hear me, because of the tragic consequences of her life. Guys, God may not be rescuing you from prison because you may need to be right where you are to carry out the perfect sovereign will of God. Every head bowed and every eye closed. What the enemy meant for evil God turned for good so that many may be saved alive. Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at northridgethomaston.com.